thanks for listening to this sermon from Cedar Springs Church. We know life is busy and it's easy to get caught up running in so many directions. At Cedar Springs, we see you and we're with you. We also understand the feeling inside of you for something deeper. In fact, we believe God created us for those deeper things and we want to help you discover them. We want to introduce you to a life lived deeply with God and with others. If you're not already, we invite you to visit us during one of our Sunday worship services. We are all working toward taking our next step to move into deeper faith and community. So come, take your next step with us. We don't want you to settle for life as normal because you were made to live deeply. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you, good to be together. If you're new with us, my name is James Forsyth, and you've joined us on a great week. We're in the second week of a series called You Asked For It. You Asked For It. We're taking questions from the congregation, and then we're taking six weeks to, to work through these questions that are, uh, that are real live questions and as, as we try to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in this life. And this morning, we come to the question of, of why a good God would allow suffering. Why would a good God allow suffering? A question I think most of us have wrestled with at one point or another. Well, one of my mentors in the faith is a Presbyterian pastor called Tim Keller, and he wrote a book called The Reason for God. And this book has been really helpful to me as I've reflected upon suffering. And not just as I've reflected upon suffering in an intellectual way, but personally for me too, as I've walked through some hard seasons in my, my own life. And much of what I'll share today is going to come from this book. I want you to know that. And I also want to give you a copy of it if you're newer to our church. If you've been in our church, say, within the last year or so, we would love to give you a, a free copy of this book. Make your way out to the Welcome Center uh, after this service is over. I'm told we've already given away the morning copies, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to take your name, and we're going to make sure that we get you a copy for, for next week. I hope you'll find this helpful on this topic of suffering, but also helpful as you wrestle with these things, these things of, of faith. But now, let's give our attention to to God's word, to the Bible, which last week we said was a book that can be trusted. So let's turn to Job, the book of Job, and chapter 42 of this book. This is the, the last chapter of the book of Job. The book of Job, you may know, opens by introducing us to, to Job himself. He is a righteous man who walks faithfully before the Lord and ha has found himself to be incredibly blessed. He has great health, great wealth, and a great family. But then, as the story unfolds, for reasons that are unknown to Job, but known to God and known to the reader of this book, all of his blessings are stripped from him. He loses his health. He loses his wealth. He loses his very family. All of his children die. And so Job comes and remonstrates with the Lord. He argues with the Lord to try and figure out why disaster after disaster after disaster have befallen him. And then in chapter 8, 30, 38, sorry, the Lord appears to Job and, and responds with a series of, of questions. And following this encounter, Job issues a final reply of his own. And that's what we're about to read together. Job 42, verses 1 through 6. Let's read this as we launch into our reflections on suffering together. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, 
and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted? Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Father God, we, we recognize that as we come to a topic like this, we're, we're not here to just take a, a detached academic interest in it. We're not here just to approach this from some sort of detached intellectual viewpoint. We are, we're talking about a reality, suffering, that is, that is all too real in our world, in our nation, and in our lives. So would you come, Lord, and, and help us to make sense of it? That in the midst of it, we might, we might understand your love. And I pray especially, Lord, for, for those in our church, those in this room, those here in this very moment who, who find themselves in, in the middle of sorrow and struggle and suffering. Would you make yourself known to them in a special way? And do it for your own glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's a, it's a weighty thing, isn't it, to reflect upon the depth of suffering that's in our world. To reflect upon the depth of, of pain that's in our world. And I'm not talking about, you know, the kind of first world problems, kind of things we all like to complain about. Um, I did a brutal workout this week. I had to row and jump rope and run miles and miles. And at the end of it, I said, oh, I feel like a dead man. Then I woke up the next morning and said, no, now I feel like a dead man. And I complained about it for the rest of the week. <laughs> or a friend tells a fascinating story of um, hearing a, a Holocaust survivor share about his experience in the death camp. Well, after this survivor had given this moving account, my friend had the opportunity to have, have dinner with him. And as they were walking through the buffet line, the survivor complained about the food that was on display. Now, you understand, I'm not judging that man. It's just more of an illustration to us of our tendency to complain. Perhaps he holds up a mirror for us. Are we not a people who, by God, have been brought through the Holocaust only to complain about the buffet? We all, we all like to fuss, don't we, about first world problems. But that's, that's not really what I've been thinking about this week. And that's not really what this sermon is, is aimed at. I'm, I'm thinking about the depth of suffering in our world that truly is horrendous, that truly is horrific. And so globally, we think of the war that is still ongoing in Ukraine and of young men and, and women and children who are dying in senseless violence. And then we wish that we could keep that kind of suffering just distance from us on the, the other side of the world, but we see it in our own nation as well. A couple of weeks removed from the events that took place in Nashville. Friends, how is it that... that kids can go to school in the morning and not come back alive. And of course, we know that we can't keep suffering even just distant in our own nation. It comes to our own lives as well. Everyone in this room has had to 
endure some sort of struggle, some sort of suffering, some sort of pain. I know I have, and I know many of you have experienced much worse than, than I have. And then you add to this kind of suffering all the inexplicable things. Globally, the, the earthquake in Turkey. Nationally, the tornadoes in, in Mississippi. Personally, just cancer and death and, and tragedy. And we find ourselves asking in the midst of all of this, and I find myself asking this very week, God, why do you allow this? Why do, why do you allow this? How could a good God allow suffering? It's a challenge to any believer and of course, we can understand, right? We can understand why the existence of suffering has led some, perhaps many, to reject the existence of God. How, how believe that the reality of suffering makes it impossible for them to believe in God. The 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume popularized this way of thinking with this famous quote. He said, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? then he is impotent, powerless. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. He is evil. One skeptic perhaps put it more simply saying, God might be either all-powerful but not good enough to end evil and suffering, or else he might be all good but not powerful enough to end all evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. How do we make sense of this? How could a good God allow suffering? Well, I'd like to share just three considerations with you this morning. And I invite you to enter into them with me. Reflect on them with me. See what you make of them. See what the Spirit does in your heart as we, as we talk. How could a good God allow suffering? Well, here's the first consideration. As we begin our reflections, I think it's important for us to remember, point one, that the existence of suffering isn't necessarily evidence against the existence of God. That the existence of suffering isn't necessarily evidence against God. You see, in the face of suffering, there is this emotional appeal for us to abandon a belief in God. And we, un we, understand, we understand the logic of that, but it actually might not make as much sense as we first thought when we think about it a little deeply. Yes, at first, the logic of Hume and the skeptic I quoted a moment ago makes sense. If a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil in the world, but because there is so much pointless evil in the world, there's no way a good, powerful God could exist. But do you see that lurking within this objection is a subtle but quite ugly form of pride. It, it's subtle, but, it, but, it, but it's quite ugly to say, if suffering appears pointless to me, then it must in fact be pointless. Because if I, with my incredible intellect, if I can't understand it, there's just no way it could ever be understood. If it doesn't say make sense to, to me, in, in all of my brilliance, then surely it can't make sense to anyone. But we want to humble ourselves and remember that just because we can't see a good reason why God might allow suffering doesn't mean that there isn't a good reason why God would allow suffering. The philosopher Alvin Plantinga illustrates this idea and illustrates the error of this way of thinking by saying, um, imagine you go camping. You go camping this weekend and you decide to take your dog with you. 
you're going to take your beautiful but hulking 180-pound St. Bernard. Well, at one point, you lose her. You're not sure where she's gone. And so you look in your tent. And when you look in your tent and don't see her in there, it is safe to assume that she is not in there. But imagine instead that you're looking for a mosquito. You look in your tent. You don't see a mosquito. You shouldn't be so quick to assume that there isn't a mosquito in there. Well, in the same way, we tend to assume that if there were good reasons for suffering, they would be obvious to us. They would be easily accessible to our minds. They would look like St. Bernard's, not mosquitoes. But why should that necessarily be the case? This point, I think, is illustrated very powerfully in in our own passage. Flick with me, if you will, to the start of Job chapter 38. After Job has argued and remonstrated with the Lord, the Lord appears to him to humble him lest he fall into this kind of intellectual pride. And listen to the questions the Lord asked Job at the start of chapter 38. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Hey, Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. And you make it known to me. Job, tell me. Tell me this. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Oh, surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or Job, tell me this. Tell me who shut in the sea with its doors when it burst forth out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Or Job, um, have you commanded the morning sun since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, but their uplifted arm is broken. Or Job, um, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Job, have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. And on and on we could go. Why? Because God continues the series of rhetorical questions all the way through chapter 8 to the 38, to the start of chapter 39. And then he picks up in chapter 39 and continues the series of questions all the way through to the start of chapter 40. Then he picks up in chapter 40 and he continues the series of questions all the way through to the start of chapter 41. And then he picks up at the start of chapter 41 and continues all the way through to the start of chapter 42. Chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter to make it clear, dear ones, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. The expanse between them, the difference between them is as high as the heavens are above the earth. And so we come with a sense of humility to say, friends, just because I don't understand something doesn't mean that it's not understandable. And just because 
I can't see a reason for all suffering doesn't mean that there isn't a reason for all suffering. Tim Keller comments, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, so if you're upset with God because he's so powerful that he could stop all evil and suffering, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. And so if we can see reasons for at least some of the pain and suffering in our lives, is it not possible? Why wouldn't it be possible that from God's perspective, from God's vantage point, there are good reasons for it all? What do you make of that? Consider that with me. Reflect on that with me. Point one, that suffering isn't necessarily evidence against God. Well, in his book, Keller takes this argument a little farther and gives us a second consideration, which is this. Yes, suffering shouldn't be seen as evidence against God. And second, perhaps if anything, suffering may in fact be evidence for God. Suffering may be, if anything, evidence for God. Don't get me wrong. Of course, inexplicable suffering is a challenge for those of us who say we believe in God. But it might be a greater challenge still to those who say there is no God. It's a, it's a, look, it's a challenge for everyone. And we're honest about the fact that it's a challenge for us, but it might in fact be a greater challenge for those who don't believe in God. Keller uses the example of C.S. Lewis, who originally rejected God because of suffering in the world, because of the cruelty of this life, but then came to realize that the problem of suffering was in fact more of a challenge for him as an atheist than it had been to him when he considered belief in God. In his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis wrote this. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? Lewis recognized that his objection to God was based on a sense of justice. People ought not to suffer, but then he realized that without belief in God, he had no basis for that conclusion. If there is no God and we've just evolved, why ought people not suffer? If this is just survival of the fittest, then some are going to win and some are going to lose. You see what Lewis is is pushing us to, to consider? If you are outraged about the existence of suffering, and you should be, And if you're sorrowful about the existence of suffering, and you should be, the question is, why? Why are you outraged? Why are you sorrowful? Where did you get this sense of justice from? On what basis do you determine that things ought not to be this way? Because if you are sure that the world contains unjust suffering, that it should be different to what it, it is. You're assuming the reality of some sort of standard by which to make that judgment. And where do you get that objective standard from? Where do you get that absolute standard from if you don't have a belief in God? See, to reject God because of suffering, it's kind of like going to a restaurant and ordering a meal. Being really displeased with the meal and therefore concluding that the chef doesn't exist. 
No, like your very objection presupposes that the chef does exist. Who are you complaining against if there is no chef? <laughs> and, and so we're being pushed to, to consider that while the problem of suffering is a problem for everyone, it's, it's a mistake, though an understandable one, to think that if you abandon belief in God, you somehow solve this problem. You really just jump from the frying pan into the fire. One more quote from Alvin Plantiga. Could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if, if there's no God and we just evolved? What basis do we have to say some things are horrifying or wicked? I don't see how, Plantiga says. There can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live. A, a secular way of looking at the world, a, a, a way of looking at the world that rejects the existence of God has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort. And thus, no way to say that there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. And so Plantiga concludes, accordingly, if you think there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, then you have a powerful argument for the existence of God. What, what do you make of that one? Let these things, chew on these things. Let, let them stir in your heart and in your mind. First consideration, that suffering isn't necessarily evidence against God. Second one, in fact, suffering might be evidence for the existence of, of God. But I think it's the third consideration that's the most important. Why? Because you could say, all right, fine, you've got me. Suffering doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. But that doesn't mean he's the kind of God I want to follow. Because suffering still exists. And that's why I think this third consideration is the most important for my heart and for yours. Yes, suffering isn't evidence against God. Yes, it might even be evidence for God. But you must know, believer in Jesus, that suffering is of greatest concern to God. Suffering is of, of greatest concern to God. If you are outraged by suffering, and you should be, and if you are sorrowful over suffering, and you should be, I want you to know this. God is more outraged and more sorrowful over suffering than you and I have ever been. Than you or I have ever, ever been. We don't just come to a God who like generically and in a detached way exists in the midst of suffering. We come to a God who is concerned about suffering and, and who's going to do something about it. And we can see that, the concern that's in the heart of God, just by walking our way through the gospel story, reminding ourselves of, of how the, gospel, the, the story of the gospel unfolds. So let's begin in creation. How much suffering was in the world when God created it? Answer, none. Answer, none. God created us to flourish in Eden. That's the picture on the left. We don't know what Eden looks like, so I gave you a picture of Scotland because that's the closest thing. <laughs> God, God made us to flourish in that paradise. And Eden was a land that was free from suffering, free from evil, free from pain. You know, in Eden, nothing but pleasure came from God's hand. That was his design. Well, then what happens? After creation comes fall. 
After creation comes the fall. Suffering is introduced to the world in the fall. By God's hand? No. By our hands. Suffering is introduced to the world through our sin. And we see God's response to it in verse 13 of of Genesis 3. He comes to our first parents, not in anger, but in a sense of heartbreak, and, and says to them after they have sinned, after they've introduced suffering into his perfect world, he says, what is this that you have done? What is this that you have done? Do you hear the heartbreak in that question? That Adam and Eve did not know and could never have known the extent of pain and sorrow that would enter their world through sin. They didn't know about abuse and they didn't know about Nashville and they didn't know about Ukraine, but God, who knows the end from the beginning, knew it all and knew the pain and heartbreak that was about to enter into into his, his world. And so he comes to them and he says, what is this that you have done? He is heartbroken that his creation will now be subject to such pain. And so what does he do about it? Just wash his hands of us? No. Creation, then fall. Then after the fall, God responds by orchestrating a great plan of redemption. You want to know how concerned God is about human suffering? Consider the fact that he sent his son. Sent his son, Jesus, to do what? To suffer. To suffer and to suffer like no human being has ever suffered before or or since. Because we understand that as Christ dies on the cross, he's not just suffering physical pain. He's also taking upon himself the full wrath of God for everything evil and everything that is wrong. Taking it in our place so that we can be forgiven and brought back into a relationship with him. We have a suffering savior who is our redemption. Edward Shalito is a, a poet who wrote about the horrors of the First World War, and he, he, he writes a, a poem called Jesus of the Scars to, to highlight how, how unique this aspect is in our faith. He says, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Jesus of the scars, a God who came to earth in weakness, came in a form that we could kill so that through his scars, by his wounds, we might be healed. The story of redemption, and yet, and yet, he's not done yet. Because what happens next? What happens after redemption while we have the hope of heaven? Creation, fall, redemption, and then the promised restoration. That God has done something about evil and suffering and that he will do something about evil and suffering because he has promised that there will be a day. There will be a day when every tear is wiped and all suffering will end. When every pain and evil we've long endured will be crushed by Christ our King. And this last day is not hyperbole. Why? Because God has said that he will do it. You understand that you can call upon God to defeat any evil that he hasn't already promised he's going to defeat. 
And you can't call upon him to heal any disease that he hasn't already promised to heal. And you can't call upon him to wipe any tear that he hasn't already promised to wipe. That the hope of heaven assures us that not only does God care about something, but care about suffering, but he has done something about it. And will continue to until there is that day when all suffering will end. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration shows us that when it comes to suffering, God has the greatest concern of all. And as we close, can I, can I suggest that it's, it's this third point that your heart needs? It's this third point that my heart needs. Like more than the evidence of the first two points, you need an encounter with the God of the third. Because we don't really make sense of suffering in our world just, just by getting our, our kind of intellectual arms around it. Though you can see that the Christian faith has robust and logical and, and powerful answers to it. But along with that, along with that evidence, you also need an encounter with this God. That's what made the difference in the end for Job. Look with me at verse uh, 5 and 6 of, of chapter 42. After the Lord asks him four chapters of questions, Job responds and says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Like I had secondhand knowledge of you. I'd heard about your reputation, but now my eye sees you. Now I experience you for myself. Therefore, he says, I despise myself and repent, repenting for the intellectual pride and acknowledging the greatness and the grandeur of our God. Job has an encounter with God that radically reorients his approach to suffering. An encounter with God that radically reorients his approach to suffering. And friends, in the gospel, you can have that too. Because you can believe in the God who didn't create suffering. And you can lament that suffering entered our world through sin. And then you can rejoice that Jesus came to save us from it. And then you can hold on hope to the fact that there will be a day. So, bring your suffering to Jesus. Bring it to him. Doing so doesn't make it all magically go away, but you will find that Jesus is with you in those tears and that you will have a hope that cannot be destroyed by first world problems or even by all that's horrific until one day Jesus makes all suffering disappear. Amen. Amen. Father, we are thankful for this time together in your word. And we are grateful that you give us logic and reason and, and evidence and, and argument um, to, to make sense of this world. But Lord, more than that, more than the logic of an argument, we're grateful that you gave us yourself. That your son has entered into suffering, even has tasted death that we might not be alone uh, in our fears, but might know that he is with us, and that one day we might know all of these tears will be wiped by him. These things we pray in his happy and strong name. Amen.